Chapter Thirteen of the Warlord of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Magnet Switch. The guardsmen paid not the slightest attention to their wards, for the red men could not move over two feet from the great rings to which they were padlocked, though each had seized a weapon upon which he had been engaged when I entered the room and stood ready to join me, could they have but done so. The yellow men devoted all their attention to me, nor were they long in discovering that the three of them were none too many to defend the armory against John Carter. Would that I had had my own good long-sword in my hand that day, but as it was, I rendered a satisfactory account of myself with the unfamiliar weapon of the yellow man. At first I had a time of it dodging their villainous hook-swords, but after a minute or two I had succeeded in wresting a second straight sword from one of the racks along the wall, and thereafter, using it to parry the hooks of my antagonists, I felt more evenly equipped. The three of them were on me at once, and, but for a lucky circumstance, my end might have come quickly. The foremost guardsman made a vicious lunge for my side with his hook after the three of them had backed me against the wall. But as I sidestepped and raised my arm, the weapon but grazed my side, passing into a rack of javelins where it became entangled. Before he could release it, I had run him through, and then, falling back upon the tactics that have saved me a hundred times in tight pinches, I rushed the two remaining warriors, forcing them back with a perfect torrent of cuts and thrusts, weaving my sword in and out about their guards until I had the fear of death upon them. Then one of them commenced calling for help, but it was too late to save them. They were as putty in my hands now, and I backed them about the armory as I would, until I had them where I wanted them, within reach of the swords of the shackled slaves. In an instant both lay dead upon the floor, but their cries had not been entirely fruitless, for now I heard answering shouts and the footfalls of many men running, and the clank of accoutrements and the commands of officers. The door! Quick, John Carter! "'Bar the door!' cried Tardus Moors. Already the guard was in sight, charging across the open court that was visible through the doorway. A dozen seconds would bring them into the tower. A single leap carried me to the heavy portal. With a resounding bang I slammed it shut. "'The bar!' shouted Tardus Moors. I tried to slip the huge fastening into place, but it defied my every attempt. "'Raise it a little to release the catch!' cried one of the red men. I could hear the yellow warriors leaping along the flagging just beyond the door. I raised the bar and shot it to the right just as the foremost of the guardsmen threw himself against the opposite side of the massive panels. The barrier held. I had been in time, but by the fraction of a second only. Now I turned my attention to the prisoners. To Taurus Moors I went first, asking where the keys might be which would unfasten their fetters. The officer of the guard has them, replied the Jeddak of Helium, and he is among those without who seek entrance. You will have to force them. Most of the prisoners were already hacking at their bonds with the swords in their hands. The yellow men were battering at the door with javelins and axes. I turned my attention to the chains that held Tardos Moors. Again and again I cut deep into the metal with my sharp blade, but ever faster and faster fell the torrent of blows upon the portal. At last, a link parted beneath my efforts, and a moment later Tardos Moors was free. 
though a few inches of trailing chain still dangled from his ankle. A splinter of wood falling inward from the door announced the headway that our enemies were making toward us. The mighty panels trembled and bent beneath the furious onslaught of the enraged yellow man. What with the battering upon the door and the hacking of the red men at the chains, the din within the armory was appalling. No sooner was Tartus Moors free than he turned his attention to another of the prisoners, while I set to work to liberate Morse Kajak. We must work fast, if we would have all those fetters cut before the door gave way. Now a panel crashed inward upon the floor, and Morse Kajak sprang to the door to defend the way until we should have time to release the others. With javelins snatched from the wall, he wrought havoc among the foremost of the Ocarians, while we battled with the insensate metal that stood between our fellows and freedom. At length all but one of the prisoners were freed, and then the door fell with a mighty crash before a hastily improvised battering ram, and the yellow horde was upon us. "'To the upper chambers!' shouted the red man, who was still fettered to the floor. "'To the upper chambers!' There you may defend the tower against all Cadabra. Do not delay because of me, who could pray for no better death than in the service of Tartus Moors and the Prince of Helium. But I would have sacrificed the life of every man of us rather than desert a single red man, much less the lion-hearted hero who begged us to leave him. Cut his chains, I cried to two of the red men, while the balance of us hold off the foe. There were ten of us now to do battle with the Ocarian guard, and I warrant that that ancient watchtower never looked down upon a more hotly contested battle than took place that day within its own grim walls. The first inrushing wave of yellow warriors recoiled from the slashing blades of ten of Helium's veteran fighting men. A dozen Ocarian corpses blocked the doorway, but over the gruesome barrier a score more of their fellows dashed shouting their hoarse and hideous war-cry. Upon the bloody mound we met them, hand to hand, stabbing where the quarters were too close to cut, thrusting when we could push a foeman to arm's length, and mingled with the wild cry of the Ocarian, there rose and fell the glorious words, For Helium! For Helium! that for countless ages have spurred on the bravest of the brave, to those deeds of valor that have sent the fame of Helium's heroes broadcast through the length and breadth of a world. Now with a fetter struck from the last of the red men, and thirteen strong we met each new charge of the soldiers of Salensisol. Scarce one of us but bled from a score of wounds, yet none had fallen. From without we saw hundreds of guardsmen pouring into the courtyard, and along the lower corridor from which I had found my way to the armory we could hear the clank of metal and the shouting of men. In a moment we should be attacked from two sides, and with all our prowess we could not hope to withstand the unequal odds which would thus divide our attention and our small numbers. To the upper chambers, cried Tartus Moors, and a moment later we fell back toward the runway that led to the floors above. Here another bloody battle was waged with the force of yellow men who charged into the armory as we fell back from the doorway. Here we lost our first man, a noble fellow whom we could ill spare, but at length all had backed into the runway except myself, who remained to hold back the Ocarians until the others were safe above. In the mouth of the narrow spiral, but a single warrior could attack me at a time, 
so that I had little difficulty in holding them all back for the brief moment that was necessary. Then, backing slowly before them, I commenced the ascent of the spiral. All the long way to the tower's top, the guardsmen pressed me closely. When one went down before my sword, another scrambled over the dead man to take his place. And thus, taking an awful toll with each few feet gained, I came to the spacious glass-walled watchtower of Cadabra. Here my companions clustered, ready to take my place, and for a moment's respite I stepped to one side while they held the enemy off. From the lofty perch a view could be had for miles in every direction. Toward the south stretched the rugged ice-clad waste to the edge of the mighty barrier. Toward the east and west, and dimly toward the north, I descried other Ocarian cities, while in the immediate foreground, just beyond the walls of Cadabra, the grim guardian shaft reared its somber head. Then I cast my eyes down into the streets of Cadabra, from which a sudden tumult had arisen, and there I saw a battle raging, and beyond the city's walls I saw armored men marching in great columns toward a nearby gate. Eagerly I pressed forward against the glass wall of the observatory, scarce daring to credit the testimony of my own eyes. But at last I could doubt no longer, and with a shout of joy that rose strangely in the midst of the cursing and groaning of the battling men at the entrance to the chamber, I called to Tardis Moors. As he joined me, I pointed down into the streets of Cadabra and to the advancing columns beyond, above which floated bravely in the Arctic air the flags and banners of Helium. An instant later, every red man in the lofty chamber had seen the inspiring sight, and such a shout of thanksgiving arose, as I warned never before echoed through that age-old pile of stone. But still we must fight on, for though our troops had entered Cadabra, the city was yet far from capitulation, nor had the palace even been assaulted. Turn and turn about we held the top of the runway, while the others feasted their eyes upon the sight of our valiant countrymen battling far beneath us. Now they have rushed the palace gate. Great battering rams are dashed against its formidable surface. Now they are repulsed by a deadly shower of javelins from the wall's top. Once again they charge, but a sortie by a large force of Ocarians from an intersecting avenue crumples the head of the column, and the men of Helium go down, fighting beneath an overwhelming force. The palace gate flies open, and a force of the Jeddak's own guard, picked men from the flower of the Ocarian army, sallies forth to shatter the broken regiments. For a moment it looks as though nothing could avert defeat. And then I see a noble figure upon a mighty thoat, not the tiny thoat of the red man, but one of his huge cousins of the dead sea bottoms. The warrior hews his way to the front, and behind him rally the disorganized soldiers of Helium. As he raises his head aloft to fling a challenge to the red men upon the palace walls, I see his face, and my heart swells in pride and happiness as the red warriors leap to the side of their leader and win back the ground that they had just lost. The face of him upon the mighty thoat is the face of my son, Carthoris of Helium. At his side fights a huge Martian warhound, nor did I need a second look to know that it was Wula, my faithful Wula, who had thus well performed his arduous task and brought the succoring legions in the nick of time. In the nick of time? 
who yet might say that they were not too late to save, but surely they could avenge, and such retribution as that unconquered army would deal out to the hateful Ocarians. I sighed to think that I might not be alive to witness it. Again I turned to the windows. The red men had not yet forced the outer palace wall, but they were fighting nobly against the best that Okar afforded, valiant warriors who contested every inch of the way. Now my attention was caught by a new element without the city wall, a great body of mounted warriors looming large above the red men. They were the huge green allies of Helium, the savage hordes from the dead sea bottoms of the far south. In grim and terrible silence they sped on toward the gate, the padded hoofs of their frightful mounts giving forth no sound. Into the doomed city they charged, and as they wheeled across the wide plaza before the palace of the Jeddak of Jeddaks, I saw, riding at their head, the mighty figure of their mighty leader, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark. My wish, then, was to be gratified, for I was to see my old friend battling once again, and though not shoulder to shoulder with him, I too would be fighting in the same cause here in the high tower of Okar. Nor did it seem that our foes would ever cease their stubborn attacks, for still they came, though the way to our chamber was often clogged with the bodies of their dead. At times they would pause long enough to drag back the impeding corpses, and then fresh warriors would forge upward to taste the cup of death. I had been taking my turn with the others in defending the approach to our lofty retreat, when Morse Kajak, who had been watching the battle in the street below, called aloud in sudden excitement. There was a note of apprehension in his voice that brought me to his side the instant that I could turn my place over to another, and as I reached him he pointed far out across the waste of snow and ice toward the southern horizon. Alas, he cried, that I should be forced to witness cruel fate, betray them without power to warn or aid, that they be past either now. As I looked in the direction he indicated, I saw the cause of his perturbation. A mighty fleet of flyers was approaching majestically toward Cadabra from the direction of the ice barrier. On and on they came with ever-increasing velocity. The grim shaft that they call the Guardian of the North is beckoning to them, said Morse Kajak sadly, just as it beckoned to Tartarus Morse and his great fleet. See where they lie, crumpled and broken, a grim and terrible monument to the mighty force of destruction which naught can resist. I too saw, but something else I saw that Moore's Kajak did not. In my mind's eye, I saw a buried chamber whose walls were lined with strange instruments and devices. In the center of the chamber was a long table, and before it sat a little pop-eyed old man counting his money. But plainest of all, I saw upon the wall a great switch with a small magnet inlaid within the surface of its black handle. Then I glanced out at the fast-approaching fleet. In five minutes that mighty armada of the skies would be bent and worthless scrap, lying at the base of the shaft beyond the city's wall, and yellow hordes would be loosed from another gate to rush out upon the few survivors, stumbling blindly down through the mass of wreckage. Then the apts would come. I shuddered at the thought for I could vividly picture the whole horrible scene. Quick have I always been to decide and act, 
the impulse that moves me and the doing of the thing seem simultaneous. For if my mind goes through the tedious formality of reasoning, it must be a subconscious act of which I am not objectively aware. Psychologists tell me that, as the subconscious does not reason, too close a scrutiny of my mental activities might prove anything but flattering. But, be that as it may, I have often won success, while the thinker would have been still at the endless task of comparing various judgments. And now celerity of action was the prime essential to the success of the thing that I had decided upon. Grasping my sword more firmly in my hand, I called to the red man at the opening to the runway to stand aside. Way for the Prince of Helium, I shouted. And before the astonished yellow man, whose misfortune it was to be at the fighting end of the line at that particular moment, could gather his wits together, my sword had decapitated him, and I was rushing like a mad bull down upon those behind him. Way for the Prince of Helium, I shouted as I cut a path through the astonished guardsman of Silenza's old. Hewing to right and left, I beat my way down that warrior-choked spiral until near the bottom, those below, thinking that an army was descending upon them, turned and fled. The armory at the first floor was vacant when I entered it, the last of the Ocarians having fled into the courtyard, so none saw me continue down the spiral toward the corridor beneath. Here I ran as rapidly as my legs would carry me toward the five corners, and there plunged into the passageway that led to the station of the old miser. Without the formality of a knock, I burst into the room. There sat the old man at his table, but as he saw me he sprang to his feet, drawing his sword. With scarce more than a glance toward him I leaped for the great switch, but quick as I was, that wiry old fellow was there before me. How he did it I shall never know, nor does it seem credible that any Martian-born creature could approximate the marvellous speed of my earthly muscles. Like a tiger he turned upon me and I was quick to see why Solon had been chosen for this important duty. Never in all my life have I seen such wondrous swordsmanship and such uncanny ability as that ancient bag of bones displayed. He was in forty places at the same time, and before I had half a chance to awaken to my danger, he was like to have made a monkey of me, and a dead monkey at that. It is strange how new and unexpected conditions bring out unguessed ability to meet them. That day, in the buried chamber beneath the palace of Silenza's old, I learned what swordsmanship meant, and to what heights of sword mastery I could achieve when pitted against such a wizard of the blade as Solon. For a time he liked to have bested me, but presently the latent possibilities that must have been lying dormant within me for a lifetime came to the fore, and I fought as I have never dreamed a human being could fight. That that duel royal should have taken place in the dark recesses of a cellar, without a single appreciative eye to witness it, has always seemed to me almost a world calamity, at least from the viewpoint Barsoomian, where bloody strife is the first and greatest consideration of individuals, nations, and races. I was fighting to reach the switch, Solon to prevent me, and though we stood not three feet from it, I could not win an inch toward it, for he forced me back an inch for the first five minutes of our battle. I knew that if I were to throw it in time to save the oncoming fleet, it must be done in the next few seconds, and so 
I tried my old rushing tactics, but I might as well have rushed a brick wall for all the Solon gave way. In fact, I came near to impaling myself upon his point for my pains, but right was on my side, and I think that that must give a man greater confidence than though he knew himself to be battling in a wicked cause. At least I did not want in confidence. And when I next rushed Solon, it was to one side, with implicit confidence that he must turn to meet my new line of attack, and turn he did, so that now we fought with our sides towards the coveted goal. The great switch stood within my reach upon my right hand. To uncover my breast for an instant would have been to court sudden death, but I saw no other way than to chance it, if by so doing I might rescue that oncoming succoring fleet, and so... In the face of a wicked sword-thrust, I reached out my point and caught the great switch a sudden blow that released it from its seating. So surprised and horrified was Solon that he forgot to finish his thrust. Instead, he wheeled toward the switch with a loud shriek, a shriek which was his last. For before his hand could touch the lever it sought, my sword's point had passed through his heart. End of chapter 13 Recording by Thomas Copeland.